Disclaimer before we get started, I am not a doctor or a medical professional. This podcast is not meant to give medical advice or education, merely entertainment. If you have a medical question, please ask your doctor. Thank you. Kimmy, you're looking so cute. You're so cute. today. Welcome to Crocheting Through Medical History. I'm Maria, here to talk about medical history and not crochet because I've been crocheting a lot over the weekend and um, my wrist can hurt. So we're gonna chill out. Yeah, anyway. Um, today we're going to be talking about the dark origins of nursery rhyme people. Point, point. Oh, you're so cute. I love you so much. Today, we are going to be talking about the dark origins of some nursery rhymes. I was trying to make them all medical history related. Ew, Ponyo. It's a bird. What was I saying? I was trying to make all of these medical history related but they're mostly not medical history so we're gonna expand our horizons today and talk about some other things so so the first one we're gonna be talking about is ring round the rosy i feel like this is the most well known to be about a historical epidemic I don't know. Um, so I thought I'd start with it. We're on the Library of Congress blogs, and we are reading Ring Around the Rosie, Metaphoric Lore, Rhyme, and Reason, written by Stephen Winnick. So, a recent blog post at Londonist describes five London nursery rhymes depicting death and ruin. The rhymes in question have diverse origins and histories, but what seems incontrovert... Incontrovertible. But what seems incontrovertible from James Fitzgerald's work is that they describe dark and portentous matters from English history. There's a lot of weird words. Or do they? Looking closely at these rhymes and its scholarship surrounding them suggest other interpretations. I'll discuss one of the rhymes in particular because it tells us interesting things about folklore and our ideas about folklore. Ring Around the Rosie, or Ring a Ring of Roses, as it's sometimes known, Fitzgerald's text goes like this Ring a Ring of Roses, pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. That is too British. I am too American for this. <laughs> Fitzgerald states emphatically that this rhyme arose from the Great Plague, an outbreak of bubonic and pneumonic plague that affected London in the year 1665. Ring a Ring of Roses is all about the Great Plague, the apparent whimsy being a foil for one of London's most atavistic dreads thanks to the Black Death. The fatalism of the rhyme is brutal. The roses are a euphemism for deadly rashes, the posies a supposed preventative measure, and a tissues pertain to sneezing symptoms. And the implication of everyone falling down is, well, death. 
This interpretation emerged in the mid-20th century and has become widespread, but it has never been accepted by folklorists for several reasons. First, like most folklore items, this rhyme exists in many versions and variants. This allows us to ask whether the specific images associated with the plague occur in all or even most versions. It turns out they don't. Many versions have no words that sound like sneezes, and many versions don't mention falling down. For example, Iona and Peter Opie give an 1883 version in which kerchi is dialect for curtsy. A ring, a ring of roses, a pocket full of posies, one for Jack and one for Jim and one for little Moses. A kerchi in and a kerchi out and a kerchi all together. Kerchi. Oh, that sounds like a handkerchief. Kerchi. Moreover, in many versions, everyone gets up again once they have fallen down, which hardly makes sense if falling down represents death. Posies, or bouquets of flowers, are almost universal in the song. However, many versions do not make them portable, but install them in pots or bottles, which doesn't fit well with the plague interpretation. William Wells Newell, writing in 1883, gave several versions, including Round the Ring of Roses, Pots Full of Posies, The One Who Stoops Last Shall Tell Whom She Loves Best. That's the worst rhyme so far. And... Ring around the rosy, bottle full of posy, all the girls in our town ring for little Josie. On May 16, 1939, in Weirgate, Texas, John Ruby Lomax collected an interesting version for the Library of Congress from a group of African-American schoolgirls. You can hear it in the player below. The words are as follows. Ring around a rosy, pocket full of posies, light bread, sweet bread, squat. Guess who she told me, tra-la-la-la-la. Mr. Red was her lover, tra-la-la-la-la. If you love him, hug him. If you hate him, stomp. Should we listen to this? None of these versions fits the plague's interpretation very well, but they do reveal other functions and meanings. The rhyme is often used as a playful courtship game in which children dance in a ring, then suddenly stoop, squat, curtsy, curtsy, or in some cases, fall to the ground. The last to do so, or the one that jumps the gun, has to pay a penalty, which is sometimes to profess love for or hug or kiss another child. In some versions, this child then takes up place in the middle of the ring, representing the rosy or rose bush. Newell explicitly states that the game was played like this in America in the 1880s, and European analogs from the same time and later are similar. In many versions, then, the roses and posies signify what flowers often signify in traditional European culture. Not suffering and death, but joy and love. The above observations show that Ring Around the Rosie is a singing game or a play party song, both of which are names for children's dance songs. Plague theorists say it's still possible that the plague was the original meaning and that children pressed the rhyme into service for their games and dances. But there are other reasons, too, not to believe the plague story. For example, this rhyme and dance are internationally distributed and records turn up on the European continent before they do in England. 
The OPs give versions from Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, among other places. Meanwhile, there is no evidence, and the rhyme existed in English until the late 19th century. Newell writing in 1883 asserted that the rhyme was known in New Bedford, Massachusetts in 1790, but he gave no evidence, and none has come to light. After this unsubstantiated claim, the rhyme doesn't turn up in English until 1881. What evidence is there it survived undocumented since 1665? The claim that the rhyme was related to pestilence is even younger. The folklorist who diligently recorded the rhyme itself in the 19th and early 20th centuries never mentioned the plague interpretation, although they surely would have had they known it. The first evidence I've seen that people were connecting the rhyme with death and disaster is from 1949 when the newspaper The Observer ran a parody of the rhyme beginning Ring-a-ring a geranium, a pocket full of uranium, and referring to the bombing of Hiroshima. In 1951, we find the first direct reference to the plague interpretation. Iona and Peter Opie state that some people believe the rhyme refers to the plague, but are not themselves convinced. Finally, there's simply no direct evidence. Even if the rhyme itself remained unrecorded for 200 years after the plague, various types of evidence might exist. A description of children playing at dancing games referred to roses and mocking the plague or oral traditions of the earliest informants making the link. As it turns out, though, neither of these kinds of evidence has turned up. Despite meticulous day-to-day -day accounts of life in London in 1665 and accounts of the plague by people who lived through it. So, today's scholars want to know. How did the first person who claimed a connection between the events of 1665 and this rhyme find out that about the connection, and why can't we find whatever evidence he or she had? In 2010, English folklorist and librarian Steve Roud noted that the plague origin is complete nonsense, and in the 1980s, the OPs who first recorded and debunked the belief in 1951 wrote, We ourselves have had to listen so often to this interpretation, we are reluctant to go out of the house. Still, the story only seems to have grown stronger in the second half of the 20th century, and this itself is interesting to folklorists. After all, the story itself is folklore, a tale that was passed on by word of mouth first, then in writing and online media. And because it is about folklore, folklorists classify it as metafolklore, folklore about folklore. If the plague story is folklore, we would expect to encounter it in different versions and variants. And so we do. The two main variants are the Londonists claim that the rhyme refers to the Great Plague of 1665, and others claim that it stems from the Black Death of 1347. Within these two main variants, there are sub-variants. In particular, Fitzgerald and others say the 1665 rhyme originated in London, while others say it came from Ayam, a village in the English Midlands that was also infected with the plague in 1655. One article even claims... AM children sang it while dancing around the victims. Ew. There are also innumerable individual versions of this story, each with its own quirks. Because the plague can infect different parts of the body and cause different symptoms, because people know about or imagine different historical health practices, and because different versions of the rhyme have different specific words, plague stories vary widely in the correspondence they find between words and plague experiences. For some, a tissue signifies a sneeze, while for others, ashes signify cremation. For supporters of pneumonic plague, the ring is a rosy skin rash, while for supporters of the bubonic plague, it's a red inflammation around a back black bubo.
In fact, observing the many different ways in which Ring Around the Rosie has been said to confirm to real or supposed symptoms, it seems clear that the story did not grow from compelling evidence, rather evidence has been gathered to support a compelling story. Metafolkloric stories can be either accurate or inaccurate, but in either case there's usually a compelling reason we keep telling them, or a deeper truth they express. So, one question folklorists like to ask is, what has been so interesting to people about this story? That's a hard question to answer, but we can note certain patterns in the kinds of people who tell it. It's very appealing to historians for whom a glimpse of the distant past in the present is always exciting. It's especially compelling to historians and the plagues themselves. In fact, standard works about the 1347 plague and the 1665 plague recount the story as fact. Part of the task of such historians is to explain how the plague has continued to influence our lives and the chance to mention a rhyme everyone knows and connected to this deep history is irresistible. Secondly, the story is often told by advocates for particular places. Travel blogs spread the AM story while Londonist celebrates London and everything that happens in it. Advocates for medical education and even for sanitary sewers have used the song's supposed connection to disease to suggest that their particular expertise remains relevant to anyone who has heard this common rhyme. Finally, there are many people with a love of the macabre, and nothing is more disturbing than the idea of little children playing to a description of pestilence and death. Our love for the plague story goes deeper than the agendas of a few interest groups, though. Even professors who know it's not true can't resist telling it. Folklorists know better than anyone the fascination with things that are older than they seem, and with extraordinary origins of everyday things. Some founders of the discipline of folklore espoused the theory of survivals, which held that cultural materials such as nursery rhymes preserved information from the past that was otherwise forgotten. To adherence of this theory, a shard of pottery, a riddle, or a child's jingle could be the key that unlocked the mythology of the distant past. And the folklorist's task was to interpret or decode the cryptic messages within these fragments. In fact, the irony is that the plague story resembles nothing so much as a 19th century folklorist's interpretation of the rhyme, but today's folklorists often express annoyance with this tale's persistence. Maybe it reminds us too much of ourselves. In any case, we certainly understand its appeal. In the marketplace of ideas, a good story often outsells mere facts. How do we feel about this lighting? I got string lights for free from Facebook. And they're very warm, but then they're not super bright, so I still have my, like, normal room light on. It feels kind of cozy, though. I'm excited for, like, winter. Okay, so next we're going to talk about the it's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring, um, and that we probably die is R.I.P. Anyway, this is on VancouverSun.com. Um, it was published in 2019. Solid 14 years old. What year is it? Uh, and it was written by Chad Skelton. Vancouver has been experiencing some typical rainy weather the last few days, which, in our home at least, means quite a few renditions of the classic nursery rhyme. It's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring, he went to bed and bumped his head and couldn't get up in the morning. And, as often happens when someone starts singing that rhyme, I wonder, what does the last line mean exactly? 
Why wouldn't the old man just get up in the morning? Did he die, fall into a coma, or was he just too lazy to get up? To my surprise, after a fair bit of time spent searching online, far too much time really, I couldn't find a clear answer. There were lots of sites where people asked the same question, with dozens of people weighing in on their own opinion, but no definitive evidence of what the actual intention of the original song was, at least in part I imagine because the exact origins of the song are unclear. One of the few hints I did find was in the Wikipedia entry on the song, which actually renders the last lyric as, and he wouldn't get up in the morning which, hopefully for the old man, suggests that he just didn't want to get up as opposed to not being able to. And while I didn't find an answer to my question, I did, in my search, stumble across a pretty hilarious 2003 study from the Canadian Medical Association Journal that complained that several popular nursery rhymes portray head injuries as inevitable events that do not require medical follow-up. The section of the tongue-in-cheek paper on the old man in It's Raining, It's Pouring is particularly funny, and specifically addresses the confusion around exactly what happened. There are two versions of the rhyme. The first version is present above, the second one changes the sequence of events so that the old man bumped his head, then went to bed. Obviously, establishing the exact sequence of events is crucial to the creation of a differential diagnosis. If the elderly gentleman bumped his head after retiring for the evening, one is forced to entertain potential foul play, seizure activity, or even a postcoital myocardial infarction. There is no evidence to confirm the commonly held belief that he was alone. As it should be noted that he was snoring, could his death have been precipitated by severe obstructive sleep apnea? If you want to learn more about sleep apnea, go check out my sleep apnea episode. I'll link right here. If he actually bumped his head before going to bed, the list of potential mechanisms is endless and a good forensic investigation is required to determine the cause of death. The notoriously poor documentation of factors precipitating head injury in nursery rhymes makes it impossible to determine what really happened in this case as well as others. The CMAJ study also dissects the head injuries in five other nursery rhymes, including Jack and Jill, Humpty Dumpty, Hushabye Baby, and Ten Little Monkeys, you know, the ones who jumped on the bed and bumped their heads. What about you? What do you think happened to the old man in the rhyme? I kind of always imagined, like, I don't know, I have a very specific image in my head. And I think that the old man is in a bunk bed. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why he's in a bunk bed, but he's in a bunk bed. And then there's a window on this wall and you can see the rain. So, you know, it's raining because that's what the song is. But then I don't know if the old man like sits up too fast in bed and like whacks his head or if he like, you know, like you try to turn over and then like there's a there's a bed frame, but like it's a bunk bed. So it's tall. It's like the tall like pole of a bed frame. Maybe like rolled over and like smacked his head on it i don't know man maybe he was just jumping on the bed maybe he was the monkeys he's definitely alone though that part's very clear because he is in a bunk bed on the bottom and no one is in the top unless i just didn't see that part you know maybe there is someone up there and my subconscious just never showed it to me anyway this is what it's like to live in my head that's a very distinct memory that i just had back there and i want to know where I found it. The third one we're going to talk about is... I forgot. What is this about? Hello? 
the last one we're going to talk about is Mary Mary Quite the Contrary by Jacob Uti about a year ago on americansongwriter.com. This is behind the curious meaning of the traditional song Mary Mary Quite Contrary. For anyone who has studied poetry, literature, music, or philosophy, the best part of the field is interpretation. Sometimes, most of the time, the meaning of the phrase or lyric is not clear. There's just enough on the page to hint at the meaning or to imply something significant. Origins Mary Mary Quite Contrary is an English nursery rhyme that is often sung by children at play. To many, the little ditty has a meaning akin to something religious. To others, it is about governorship or even fertility. But, of course, its origin and actual meanings are disputed. And, while some think it points to historical figures in the 16th century, there is no proof of the nursery rhyme being sung prior to the 18th century. Today, the most common version of the lyrics go like this. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Yet, there are other versions that have popped up in history as well. For example, the oldest known version of the rhyme was published in Tommy Thumb's Pretty Songbook in 1744. And that rhyme goes like this. Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells, and so my garden grows. Even still, there are other versions, such as this offering from the 18th century. Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells, sing cuckles in a row. And even within more accepted versions, the last line has varied throughout history. Such alternative rhymes include cow slips all in a row and with lady bells on all in a row. What could all this mean? For clarification, a cockle is a bivalve mollusk that resides in sandy, sheltered beaches throughout the world. And a cuckold is understood as either a husband with an adulterous wife or, in biology terminology, a male who takes care of children that are not genetically his. And a cowslip is a type of flowering plant. Much to digest. As noted, the meaning of the nursery rhyme is disputed. It's vague enough to offer many interpretations, and due to its variations in ending lines and verbiage, there are many ways to understand the history of the meaning as well as the meaning itself. For example, some say Mary refers to Jesus' mother, and thus the rhyme is about the spread of Catholicism. Others suggest the name refers to Mary I of England, Mary Tudor, or Mary, Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart, who were both contemporaries in the 16th century, which is some 200 years before the rhyme was popularized. Perhaps the rhyme points to all these people and their commonalities. But maybe the most important part of the rhyme is the idea of the garden. For any bit of song to stick around for hundreds of years, there likely has to be many applications and interpretations. One meaning doesn't tend to stick in history, but several have a better chance. Therefore, the garden growing may mean some idea of fertility. How does Mary grow her family? How does the garden in her lineage increase? Or the garden could be religion. How does the adoption of a religion increase and spread? But what about Mary being contrary? When someone is contrary, they go against the grain. Therefore, the rhyme may be wondering aloud, how does someone who goes against the grain expect to also grow their philosophy or family? Well, with pretty flowers and seashells, that's how. And with men, cuckolds, who will watch over those children, or those religious theologies, that weren't theirs originally, but are theirs now. Indeed, perhaps the rhyme is about a strong woman who gets things done. Some believe the bells in the rhyme represent the sanctus bells and that the cockle shells are the badges of pilgrims to the shrine of St. James in Spain. The pretty handmaids are the nuns. Another theory is that it wonders how Mary, Queen of Scots' reign, grows, 
and the silver bells are her cathedral bells. The cockle bell shells. The cockle shells are implying that her husband was not faithful to her, and the pretty maids all in a row are her ladies in waiting. Or if Mary is Mary the First of England, then the question arises about her heirs, and that she is quite contrary is a reference to her unsuccessful attempt to reverse changes by her father and brother, and the pretty maids are a reference to miscarriages. But in reality, these meanings are likely superimposed after the fact. More likely, the rhyme is about feminine growth of some sort, which is a fundamental, crucial part of human existence. The species is furthered by women who give birth to more and therefore wisdom and governance and anything else that comes from humanity. And it is the thoughtful women and contrarians who perhaps are best at that, in the end, who lead us into the future. Adorned with beautiful things, women make life possible and there are more in waiting, thankfully. Let us never forget that. That's the point. That's it, guys. We did it. I read. I could read. I can read. How exciting. Anyway, I have been working on crochet things the past two weeks, I guess, since I've been back. I think I mentioned in the last one, I finished the second stacking dino I've been working on, and I'm actually working on editing a video of that process. So if you're interested in that or want to see the finished product, don't go there yet because it is not out yet. When will it be out? could be a while still. Sub like this video and subscribe to me and turn on notifications so that you can, you know, be notified when that does eventually come out. If you want to see my other crochet works, uh, follow me on Instagram at MariaMakesMakes. Um, I'm posting some stuff over there. I'm working on a few projects now and have um, made a few for baby showers. My life is full of pregnant women um so I have a lot of baby showers and I'm crocheting things for them I also if you want to check me out on a ribbler at Maria Makes Makes as well I am working on some very exciting little patterns to put over there I think it would be very fun and I think you should go check it out should I give a teaser okay so I think I mentioned before my sister-in-law is pregnant and I'm crocheting um, some fruits and veggies for her, and I'm gonna make them the little Velcro ones, you know, how there's, like, the Velcro plate, like, fruits and vegetables, and then you have the knife, and then you can, like, chop the apple in half and all that. I'm gonna do that. I won't crochet a knife, because that wouldn't really work, but the first of those things that I've created is a carrot. It's a carrot. Isn't it cute? It does not have Velcro yet. It's surprisingly hard to find Velcro. It's probably not. I haven't tried very hard, if I'm being honest. Um, yeah. It's a little carrot. And then we'll be able to Velcro it together. And then take it apart. And it's so cute. Am I, I'm excited. Can you tell? So I'm working on some vegetables like this. Um, and I'm writing it down so that I can hopefully release some patterns because I am very excited for this project and I think it will be so dang cute. I've also made a corn that I'm finishing up. Um, gonna make like lemons and apples and a banana and maybe some peas. Um, probably a potato. I like potatoes. Hopefully a strawberry. 
maybe a pear. I want fruit. So, go follow me on Ribbler at Murray Makes Makes so you can keep an eye out for that. If you crochet, and if you don't crochet, you should learn to crochet. I've had, in the past few months, one friend learned to crochet. Love that for her. One friend also talk about how she's crocheting something. Love that for her as well. And then another friend said that she wants to learn to crochet. And I really love that. I'm a terrible teacher. I will, I will show her nothing. I will be zero help in this endeavor. But I think everyone should learn to crochet because it's so fun. Anyway, that's all for me, from me for today. How's everyone doing? Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, let's like, subscribe, share with your friends, follow, uh, rate, review, all that stuff. If you have any topic suggestions, let me know. I'll get to them eventually, probably. I'd love to hear from you if you have any tips or suggestions or comments or concerns, I guess. Yeah, let, let me know. Love to hear. That's all for now. Have a good day. That's fun.